0: Welcome to the Jewelry Navigator podcast, an on-the-go source for unique jewelry and arriving trends to stay ahead of the fashion curve. You'll hear what inspires the jewelers and designers I feature to create outside the jewelry box. As a graduate gemologist and your host, I'll guide you with insider tips on how to shop for, design, and care for your jewelry with confidence. To keep updated on weekly jewelry discoveries, Subscribe for your Jewelry Navigator passport at JewelryNavigator.com. You can find show notes and weekly features here as well, and find daily departures for jewelry inspiration on Instagram and Facebook at Jewelry Navigator. Thank you so much for joining me and enjoy the episode. So, in celebrating our patriotism, this entire month of July, I'm dedicating the podcasts to jewelry made in the US. Today's artist not only shares the story of his jewelry, but also the story of jewelry in a time when American society was just beginning to enjoy the prosperous effects of the industrial age and work made easier by its machines. Hey there, welcome. This is episode number 16. Of the Jewelry Navigator podcast. Thank you so much for joining me, and I have a very special treat for you today. I visited a jeweler in Harrisonburg, Virginia. His name is Hugo Cole, and what he discovered is beyond fascinating. I was thrilled to learn more about his jewelry and his story. Hugo Cole creates living history literally in the form of jewelry, and I was honored to be his guest in his workshop, Boutique and Museum. I was graciously treated to a personal tour of the tools and history that ushered in the mechanization responsible for the drastic changes experienced across all aspects of culture and society in the 1800s. By the way, everyone is welcome to stop by to visit Hugo Cole's workshop, boutique, and museum. And his museum is actually a museum. It's the American Jewelry Design and Manufacturing Museum, which, of which Hugo is president and curator for. Tours are offered to the public, and he's located in Harrisonburg, Virginia, in a building that was once a giant, huge ice house. It's really cool. And seeing and touching the jewelry was such a treat, but understanding Hugo Cold jewelry from its historic perspective was an added bonus I wasn't expecting. What you'll hear is Hugo explaining the history of his jewelry, as well as the tools still used to make it. But you'll also hear ambient background sounds of the studio's music, voices from a simultaneous tour an occasional tool demonstration of a motor switching on or the impact of a tool on steel as he guides me through the museum which houses many of the tools and machines they still use we travel through time as the machines become more sophisticated and efficient my many thanks go out to hugo for the personal tour and to kate hill his boutique manager for setting up the tour and treating me to a post-tour playtime with the jewelry, which is even more exquisite in person. I really encourage you to stop by Hugo Cole Jewelry in Harrisonburg, Virginia. You've happened to be in the area this summer or anytime, really. And FYI, all Hugo Cole Jewelry is created with ethically sourced materials and made in the U.S., of course, in Harrisonburg, Virginia. You can find Hugo Cole Jewelry on his website, hugocole.com, as well as in a select few boutiques across North America. He's also on Instagram at Hugo Cole Jewelry. Here's a quick synopsis of uh, of Hugo's relationship with the jewelry and the discovery that he made that led to him beginning the museum and making the jewelry that he makes now. And this is quoted from his website, After the old-fashioned, human-powered jewelry industry collapsed in North America, someone had to rescue the old ways from from oblivion. Enter Hugo Cole, who salvaged the machines and tools from vanishing industrial-age jewelry factories and put them back into production. This virtuous act now echoes through time to deliver some of history's most coveted artwork. Although Hugo acquired a Bachelor of Science in Finance and Economics from James Madison University, his career in finance was short-lived. His innate creative drive overruled the direction of a formal business and finance career He traded for which he traded in his suits and ties for his former and current casual attire of jeans and t-shirts. What he wouldn't realize until years later is that he would be presented with opportunities to call on the concepts of his formal education and the economic processes as they unfolded during a time of advancement unprecedented for all avenues of industry. After reading a travel feature in the Washington Post about the role Providence played in developing American artisan culture, especially in regards to jewelry design and manufacturing, he decided to vacation in Providence, hoping to learn more about its contributions to the jewelry style and techniques he'd grown to appreciate. Combining vacation with curious exploration, Hugo happened upon a coincidence that would become the future of his current workshop, where he creates jewelry inspired by the vintage jewelry he'd been trained to restore. Wandering into Providence's jewelry district, Hugo visited a warehouse of jewelry manufacturing machinery. As he was looking around, workers were packing up boxes of steel parts and tools to be sold for scrap. When one of the pieces fell out, he recognized it as a component of jewelry design. Knowing the parts were on their way to be scrapped at the scrapyard, Hugo discreetly excused himself from the tour, got into his car, and raced after the dump truck. He convinced the driver to pull over after signaling to the driver that he needed to talk to him and it was urgent. As a sign of good faith, Hugo took ten $100 bills, ripped them in half so that he would be allowed to be, take several of the mysterious steel chunks contained in the boxes After a few years of tenacious research, he was able to piece together the connection between the tools which he came to learn are called hubs, and in the opening conversation you'll hear him explain all about them. By the way, you'll be able to find pictures and even some of the video that I took from our visit on the website in a few days. Hey, thanks for listening and I think you'll really enjoy this episode. It has such a great story, and I really appreciated the time Hugo took to explain to me everything that he's learned through the process of understanding how the hubs work, and the history behind them, and just getting to learn a little bit more about the American history of jewelry manufacturing. Let's leave this on. Hello. Hello.
1: Excuse me, slip in this room for a second. Sorry. So, this place is, we call this the hub vault. That's what it would have been called if it's 1820. This room would have been called the hub vault. Now, it's not, so, it's not a contrived term. Okay. The things on the on the shelves are called hubs, and the reason we call it a vault is because we keep them safe. Uh-huh. This is the really expensive part of this um, beginning of dream manufacturing. So the technology that's represented in here is where we have just stepped from a world where everything is an original to a world where now we're doing art by means of mechanical. Mm -hmm. And it's a drastic change in culture and the way people live. A hub is an actual size, three-dimensional rendering of what the finished piece is going to be, except it's done in steel. It's not a plate in a book. So when I tell you original artwork, this is the original artwork. Okay. As an aside, there's always this great argument that takes place. So a lot of times I get some, this really great hate mail the hate mail goes like this. You're screwing up the marketplace for vintage and antique jewelry, because you're putting all these copies out here. And technically, that's that's inaccurate. The only original is the hub. Everything after that is a copy. So there was no one original filigree mm-hmm. ring made. There are copies and copies and copies being stamped out. This is the original. The hub's the original. Everything after that is a copy.
0: That's a really good point.
1: Good, bad, or indifferent, it's just a fact. It's not even a point of view. It's just a fact. One of the things that you'll find is a lot of people in the jewelry industry have no knowledge that this technology existed or still does exist. Mm -hmm. In fact, I'd already been in the jewelry business for 15 years before I discovered this. Uh So there's some... Interesting things to know about this, and so I'm going to invite you to sort of walk around and look at these pieces while I'm rambling. Okay, I'm going to just sit down and talk
0: a little bit. Okay. Feel free to take a seat. So, are these the things that started you when you followed the truck? To these the, are the things, yes. yeah. And it was not
1: all of these, it was just you know, right around a few hundred of them. Okay, right. so the rest of this has just been this long collection. So, we're stepping into a world now. this is where we're leaving a world and going into a new world here's the world we're leaving there is no manufacturing the way a person would get a piece of jewelry is they are part of the hyper wealthy elite there is no middle class there are a few lords and everybody else is a serf this is the world before the industrial
0: age okay so this is this is
1: the end of the 1700s when this technology starts all right the new invention is steel So, if you were going to get a piece of jewelry before the industrial age, you were part of this hyper-wealthy elite. Mm -hmm. And a goldsmith shop made one piece of jewelry, one at a time, for one hyper-wealthy person. And now we have stepped into the industrial age, and the first industrial age is characterized by steel and steam. And now we're doing art by the means of mechanical reproduction. And this is a drastic change in the world. So, for instance, everything you're wearing right now, everything I'm wearing, everything that we possess is a copy. Mm-hmm. Before before we're manufacturing, there are no copies. Everything is an original, and poor people own nothing. Mm-hmm. They don't have anything because there's nothing being made. There is no middle class because there are no factories. I and mean, it's hard for people to think, because we live in a culture where there are many different stratifications. Mm -hmm. Back then, there were two. You are either a Lord or you are a servant. Okay. And it's a different kind of world. Another interesting thing about these pieces is if you look at them, they're really different than if we go into a mall jewelry store. Mm-hmm. And, and buy something. And I'm not making fun of this. I'm not mocking it at all. Mm-hmm. But here's the transaction. Somebody has some money, and they like me, so I get something shiny. There's a lot left out of there. These pieces are from when you very first time that average human can trade and assemble symbol. There are no symbols being passed around. Uh There's no manufacturing. This is the beginning of it. And so now, what we're trading in is a lot of allegorical and symbolic images. These things mean something. Mm -hmm. They are not just pretty designs that are meant to be eye candy. These things are meant to convey messages. Okay. And so it's a really super important thing. And here are the messages. Now when we start to have a middle class and we start to actually have it here in America Mm -hmm. where we're largely unsupervised for the first time, people are getting married because they love each other. Mm -hmm. Romantic love is not a thing. People loved each other before this. You weren't going to get married because you love someone. You were going to get married because of your proximity to a fence line and you weren't going to be doing the choosing. Mm -hmm. So these ideas of romantic love This is where they start appearing. Okay. We start seeing all kinds of um, crazy political stuff happen. We couldn't necessarily stand out on the street and you and I have an open argument. Well, uh, should women be allowed to vote or own property? Or is my wife, is she actually my property? Mm Mm-hmm. But you could wear a gold pin that's set with pearls and amethyst and sapphire. We might see each other across the town square or across from, uh, we are of a mind. We believe in suffrage. Mm -hmm. So this is the way these things start happening. And so when you look at these pieces and you realize that there are all these allegorical symbolic images, and this is the first time that they had appeared, really what we're doing is we're doing something bigger than anybody ever thinks about when they walk in this room. I'm going to footnote what I'm about to say before I say it. Okay. This is the beginning of steel. About 20% of the steel on these shelves is from this very first time. It was more expensive than its weight in pure gold. So if you're going to be a jewelry manufacturer mm-hmm. in, in early on in Providence, you certainly had to be wealthy. And the market in Providence is not big enough to support this, nor is the market in Rhode Island nor in New England, nor up and down the East Coast, but Providence is a seaport, and ships are leaving continuously, Mm -hmm. taking jewelry and going all over the world with it. And they are carrying these images. They are taking memes with them. Mm -hmm. They are infecting the whole world with what does it with these ideas about them, To choose your own destiny in the world. What's it mean to to pick your vocation? What's it mean to choose who you're going to marry? What's it mean to have religious freedom? So really, that's the big kind of idea in this room. It's not the technology. It's the spreading of these uniquely American ideas and values. Another thing that's interesting about these pieces, if you look at them, they're in various degrees of complexity. Cutting is this completely reductive process. So what we're talking about is somebody's working, either sitting or standing up underneath a south-facing window with a series of small chisels and hammers literally carving this piece out of a piece of steel. Mm-hmm. If you make a mistake, you can't repair it. You just have to grind down and start over. We're at the very edge of what a human being artisanal craft. There's really no place left to go. As a human being, you have, you have all these amazing abilities. I like to think of myself as kind of a purpose-built making machine. So if you think of yourselves in terms of evolution, well, you have this body that manifests in this way. You have these amazing hands with five fingers on each one, and they're right here in front of your eyes. You have a nervous system that's wired up to solve problems and be curious. And so it gives you all these amazing abilities to do things, but your body also um, describes practical limitations to it. If you're a hub cutter, you are definitely fighting with these limitations. This is the edge of where a human being can do and do artisanal craft. There's really no place to go after this because your body won't let you get there. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of the limit of where a human So a lot of the things in here um, are kind of self-explanatory, but a lot of it is not. Because a lot of this stuff is stuff that we don't wear anymore. Uh-huh. I standing in front of signet rings, people wear signet rings all the time. There's a section here of lingerie pins, and people don't have lingerie pins anymore. Mm-hmm. And there's a section of, of pins that were baby pins. There was a time where people did not tie bibs on babies, they pinned them on Okay. Baby. So there's all kinds of stuff that nobody uses anymore. Um, people have a tendency to think that jewelry is worn today the way that it has always been worn. You know, here's a here's a question I don't really know the answer to. There's this period in the '20s where it was some women who were wearing jewelry, it was men. Men were pimped out like crazy, and women were hardly wearing anything. And I've never really been able to why? understand
0: why was that.
1: I don't know why that is. I don't know what the what the societal forces or, or the cultural forces that caused this. That's but men were wearing were cufflinks, and they were wearing shirt studs uh-huh. and, and collar pins and watch fobs and. I mean, men were crazy pimped out. Women. We're wearing hardly nothing. Uh-huh. Um, a lot of times people think that the wedding ring has been around forever. The wedding ring has not been with us all that gosh darn long. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of stuff going on in this room that um, is something from the past. One of the challenges for us is, is how can we take all this amazing armor? The room is full of amazing armor. Mm-hmm. How can we contemporize it? put it back out in the marketplace. And and so this is an important space for us. This is where we store a lot of the artwork that we use.
0: Okay. So the things that you said I was looking at over here are signet rings, the way that they're... They're elongated. Yes. How does that work?
1: Well, they're elongated, and if you look at them another way, they also have this camelback in them. Uh-huh. And so, remember, this technology is this very vertical up-and-down stamping. We're going to pe- feed a sheet of metal mm-hmm. in between two conforming dies and stamp something, mm-hmm. and then we're going to trim it. But we still have something... That, that even though maybe a complicated shape is largely built on a plane, mm-hmm. now we need to make it round around the fingers. So if we, if we look at um, one of, let's see if we take this piece, this is obviously a signal, right? But if you look at it, it has an amazing geometry built into it. And so this is the world before CAD. So if you look at it, you can see, how this thing is concave mm-hmm. on the top. So when we bend it around a mandrel, it's going to then be flat. Oh, so here's man. how a hub is used. And so this is this hub is, again, as I told you, it's cut by hand. If you put it underneath a microscope, you can see tool marks. Uh-huh. A lot of these things when you look at them underneath a microscope and you shine light across them in different Mm -hmm. directions, you can really clearly see tool marks. Mm -hmm. So tool steel, and when I say steel, I mean tool steel, has this amazing um, characteristic that I can heat treat it. Mm -hmm. And I can make it on these two extremes. One is full hard and the other one is dead soft. And so... uh, we take a piece of steel and they hand it to a hub cutter. And when we handed it to them, it was full soft. mm mm-hmm. And that means at room temperature, it's as cuttable, filable, shapeable, and movable as it can possibly be. Mm-hmm. And after he does this work to it, we hand it back to a temperer. He's going to heat treat it and make it full hard and then just back off of full hardness a little bit. We can be at these two extremes, but we can be infinitely anywhere ah. in between them, and we can. Back and forth at will. That's what makes tool steel really super important. Wow. And this, when this material was new, and we're talking about the end of the 1790s, what we're really talking about is the most cutting edge technology uh-huh. that is on the planet. Can you imagine? I mean, we think of steel as being ubiquitous, it's recyclable, it's a common everyday item, but for them, this is super high tech. Mm-hmm. And so now a hub cutter has cut this thing, we've hardened it up, and now we take it and place it up against another piece of steel and drive it into it. And you can see here's here, here's a simple example that we're starting to make. This is a very, very, very simple tool. This is about as simple as a tool as can be made. A hub was driven into this uh-huh. to create this negative space. Uh-huh. Then put another piece of steel on top of it. We can lay a blank piece of metal in there, put it inside a drop hammer, give it a bang, uh-huh. and now we have this little teeny ring. Wow. And so uh, that's a really simple example of, of how this is done. You can see up here, this is a hub. Mm-hmm just happened to be this random one across that is in process. It was never finished. Oh, okay. So you can see various different degrees of detail going on. Mm-hmm. You can sort of watch this guy do his work. look at some of them, of these really intense filibri pieces like this, on this I mean, they're all over the place in this room,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you still really start to get a sense of what is the person's skill level. Because if you're cutting on something like this and you make your 99% done and you make a mistake, the whole piece is ruined. Mm-hmm. You now have to start over. Trying to find a human being, you can take hammers and chisels and do this. It's kind of a, this has become a really difficult thing anymore. Mm-hmm. People have a tendency to, to forget that when the artisanal craftsman runs into the industrial age at the very beginning, handcraft is at its zenith. Mm-hmm. Ever since we had this technology, we've used it very intelligently to take away from us to speed things up so we can do capitalism, so we can make money, mm-hmm. but we've also lost skills. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'm spending my whole life trying to go back in time so I can, because it interests me to have these skills, I probably won't live long enough to do this. Mm-hmm. These guys who are these craftsmen, right when the industrial age hits, craftsmen have never reached that since then. Mm-hmm. This is the zenith of crap. Everything since then is something less because we're always using technology to take things away from right, us. Right. That's
0: fascinating. There's a lot to take in in this room. There is. And when I'd see pictures of the hub, I couldn't picture in my head how it worked. So but these. You explained
1: it to me perfectly. Well, I sort of explained it in a simple way. We don't make, make anything with hubs except tools, we use a hub to make a die, and, okay. then, and then and then we put the hub away. Okay. Because when we start making stuff, when we start stamping things, it's it is, um, a lot of impact, a lot of slamming, a lot of tonnage, you can shatter tools. There's lots of examples of broken hubs in here, and there's certainly out there lots of examples of busted up die sets, mm-hmm. and so that's why this is called the hub vault. We make a hub, it to, to squeeze the die and we put the hub away. Mm-hmm. Now this thing we'll use and start hammering on and putting a lot of putting a lot of um, you know sort of violent action onto it. But the hub we want to keep safe because we're going to eventually break these tools mm-hmm. and we're going to need the hub to remake them. Okay. So okay. that's what, so this is where we pull a lot of our artwork from. There are other places in, you know in the shop that we pull out from. Here. Okay. So when we give tours in here, it's, we like to talk a little bit about the technology people an idea how these things were happening and what the history of it is, and I'll I'll share one more piece of history about this. People always want to know why this happened in Providence, because there's no gold mines, there's no silver mines, there's no mining at all in Providence. Well, it's happening in in Providence because Providence is a seaport, and so these ship captains up there uh, are early American entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. And imagine you're a ship captain and I'm a ship captain, ten of the ship captains in here with us. By the way, here's the trade that we're we're, we're doing. We're dealing in rum and molasses and slaves. Okay. That's where the money's coming from. Uh-huh. People some people are interested in that, some people don't want to know that. Yeah. But basically that's that's what's funding this. So You just finished your round, I just finished my round. All the other ship captains have finished their round. We all have the same thing. For lack of a better way to describe it, we got a chest full of bullion. Mm -hmm. We've got some coins, we've got ingots, we've got rods, we've got bars. Mm -hmm. Well, your metal and my metal look pretty much the same. Mm -hmm. So if I steal yours, it's not really identifiable, it's just bullion. Mm -hmm. They don't have the ability to mark metal the way we can mark metal now. Mm -hmm. The other problem with it is it just has the value of bullion. It has no greater value than that. Remember, these guys are really entrepreneurial. that What they do is collectively, they start bringing silversmiths and goldsmiths to Providence to take this metal and turn it into value-added goods, something that's worth more than just the metal. Mm -hmm. Mm Spoons, buttons...
0: Buckles, hollowers, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So now we have a concentration of metal and we have a
1: concentration of craftsmen. And the next thing that happens is um, there's a suburb of of Providence called Pawtucket pretty much to the same place back then. And on the Blackstone River is when we have the first yarn-making mill, and that's what really marks the beginning of the industrial age. Mm -hmm. We're now starting to make cloth. In New England. So Providence is where the industrial age starts in this country. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't know that. That's where American culture starts in this country. That's where capitalism starts in this country. Mm -hmm. And these are the things that really define us as Americans. And so now we have the very first machine shop. And if if you Want to get into this jewelry thing, you've got to go to Providence and you've got to go see this mill because it's still it's still standing. Mm-hmm. And right next door to the mill is the very first machine shop in America. So the law at the time is we can only mine raw materials here, but we must send them to England. To be turned into value added goods, and then we bring them back and sell them. Uh But Americans being Americans, we're doing, they're largely unsupervised, they're just going to do what they do. Mm -hmm. And so there's these two brothers, Cyril and Nehemiah Dodge, and they and other people are working on this thing to try to duplicate the process of making Sheffield plate, which was what was done in England. And they come up with an entirely fresh process, and they make what we call clad metal. Some people call it Mm gold-filled, but it's really the idea, we're going to laminate a precious metal over top of a substrate of a non-precious metal, Mm -hmm. and then we're going to roll it out really, really thin. Once they figured out how to make clad metal, and they got a machine shop, now we start cutting hubs so that we can start stamping things. So hub-cutting the way we see it happen in Providence is the uniquely American form of sculpture. And it's largely undocumented. This is an entirely American art form. It's since the spread, I mean, had spread all over the world. But what's going on at this moment in time, it is a unique thing. Hmm. And so it's something that, unfortunately, not all that much has been written about.
0: That's fascinating.
1: And so I love this stuff for all kinds of reasons, but what I think is really important that goes on in this room is all these images that speak to these uniquely American ideas about liberty and choosing your own destiny in the world, and how they just leave Providence and they go all over the world and st- start causing other people who had lived largely being told what to do mm-hmm. to start thinking for themselves. Mm-hmm. A lot of rebellion happens in the world because of what's going on in America. Mm-hmm. We slip in.
0: No, that's a lot of, great a lot of information. England. But um, where did they bring the artisans from? The first ones came from England. Okay.
1: But then they came from Italy. They came from Germany. They came from all over. And so um, um, it, it sort of depends on where you are in time, mm-hmm. where they're coming from. But the first ones come from England. Okay. So this is kind of one of my favorite things in here, and the reason it is is because it doesn't matter if we're giving a tour to elementary school kids Mm or a tour to postdocs. Anybody can look at this thing, sort of get a grasp on what it does, Mm -hmm. and it just hammers stuff. And so we put it here on purpose because we're underneath this rack and we're next to this clock. Mm -hmm this thing is new, neither of these things exist. So today, I can hang another pipe and drag some wire, we can hook up some lights or we can put some receptacles. Well, electricity doesn't exist then. And you would not have had access to a timepiece in this country, unless you've got a train stopping next to you, or you've got a telegraph office, that's how you had a clock. Uh-huh. And So when this piece of technology is new, you don't go to work at six, seven, or eight, or nine. You go to work when there's enough light to see, uh-huh. and that's how people were going to work. When this thing is new, there's just enough industrialized power that we can make some small cast iron parts. And we have just enough technology that we can make steel two ways we can make one way which is this hammer and anvil mm-hmm. but another way that is this spring uh-huh. and so this is called a planishing hammer and it is an early early piece of automation people not are- People think that we have always had relationships to machines. Mm -hmm. We've never had relationships machines until the industrial age. Mm -hmm. You would never have encountered a machine probably in your whole life until the industrial age. Mm -hmm. A person would sit next to this thing and they would do like this smooth out a piece of metal. hmm This also represents this important moment in capitalism because now what's going to happen is a factory owner's going to borrow some money from somebody who's probably far away. Mm-hmm. And they're going to commission this machine to be built, and now they're going to take some of their employees, put them to work on this machine, and the money that they're going to get from it is going to go back to pay other people. Before the industrial age, capitalism is mostly just an idea and not a thing. Mm -hmm. But what it really means in the practical world is people's lives are going to be used to serve the forces of capital, not capital being used to benefit people's lives. Mm-hmm. That's a major antagonism that's still with us today. Automation has three characteristics to it. One, whatever I do, it's repetitious, it's the same movement over and over and mm-hmm. over. Two, How do you like, hey, yeah. are human to this. <clears throat> We're gonna get more work out of this human than a human could do alone. But three, I'm gonna eliminate at least one human. Mm -hmm. And so, but that's not in the terms that we think about today, because what's the world for these people? We got natural resources literally laying on our feet, we got demands for goods and services we can't even hope to meet. We're short of human beings. We don't have enough people to do the work. And so what this is going to enable me to do, instead of me holding a piece of metal while two or three people beat it, mm-hmm. one person is doing I can send the rest of these workers out to the factory to do something else. And this is how we make a profit. And this is how we do economies of scale. Mm-hmm. But this is also how we start coupling human. To a machine, this is the beginning of people having a relationship with the machine, uh-huh. and it's important to start looking at that and see well, how does it play out. How sometimes is it good? How sometimes is it bad? Mm-hmm. We're moving forward in time a little bit. Okay. That's, a, that's a really old machine. That's early, early, early 1800s. Okay. Now we're in the mid-1800s. So all of these screw presses in here are American, except that, that one right there, that one's French. Uh-huh. And all of them are from the mid-1800s, and all of them work just like they did when they were brand new. Uh-huh. And so we're multiplying human power by a good bit now, 12 tons. That one, the orange body, 15 to 18 tons. These mechanisms are amazing. So I told you how old these things are, and some of these things we found, they've been sitting out in a field on their side for 50 years, just out in the rain. When we get them here, some of them look really horrendous. We just mount them on the front of a forklift and smash them up against one of these concrete columns, (laughs) and it breaks the mechanism loose. Okay. Then we'll disassemble it, oil it up, put it back together. They all work like they're brand new because this mechanism is self-healing. It just sort of repairs itself naturally. And so here's what what you do. Now, you can see all of these presses have different tools, but they're part of a work cell. They make one thing, but here's the action. And what's important about this, there's another guy who works up there with me. His name is Dan. We've been working together for 30 years. Uh-huh. We are as trained as a goldsmith or silversmith can possibly be. We could make everything. If it's made out of gold or silver or platinum, we can make it. We really don't have any limitations. And so, if you look back there on this sample block here, this is a thing that we make a lot of. We make a lot of money clips. Mm-hmm. And so, we can grab a sheet of metal and we can cut out a strip and round the edges, and we can start putting these bends in it. Mm-hmm up there, we can come back here to this tool station and make over 100 in the same amount of time. Okay. So you can see the economy
0: that's
1: yes. starting to happen here, but mm-hmm. there's a problem. It's way more interesting to go up there and do it by hand than it is to come sit back here and do this all the time. So I, I told you earlier that there, there's a question, how is my relationship to this machine mm-hmm. affecting my life? Mm-hmm. And so... Here's the thing about a screw press. It kind of goes both ways. One, you can do a lot of stuff. Two, here's another advantage. Believe it or not, you get a tremendous amount of feedback information that comes into your hand. You can feel it. So I can either just barely crack an egg or I can smash the bejesus out of something. Uh And I can be anywhere in between. But if I'm back here making screw presses... 80, 90 hours. I mean, making money clips 80, 90 hours a week, my mind is going to just go out. Mm-hmm. This is not fun. We're, we don't do that. We're kind of a boutique manufacturer. Everybody's moving from workstation to workstation mm-hmm. all the time, so it's kind of fun and interesting. And so this machine kind of has this double, cuts both ways. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting machine to work with. Here's what's really important about this machine. Imagine you it's 1820, and you just stepped off a ship from someplace that's not here, and you don't speak English, and you're illiterate. And there's hundreds of people just like you from different places who don't speak English, cannot read or write. I'm a factory owner. I'm desperate for your cheap labor. Mm-hmm. You're desperate to get a job because you don't know anybody, and you don't have any money, and you need a foothold. Now... Brenna you've just got a PhD in screw press operation because this is all there is to it mm-hmm. and so this is a kind of machine. That millions and millions and millions of Americans used to get a toe hood in this country. So if you're participating in the industrial age in England or here, you're on this. Mm-hmm. These were ubiquitous. They were everywhere. They're the workhorse of the jewelry industry, but they're the workhorse of every industry. Okay. So there's almost no way to escape the screw press.
0: So what else, what other things did screw presses make besides jewelry?
1: If you look on all these shelves in here, these are all die sets made. Jewelry that were put in screw presses. Okay. These things were, any, they're just human-powered machines that we can deliver a good bit of tonnage from uh-huh. by putting a fairly uneducated, ill human on. Okay. The toolmaker had to be brilliant, but the screw press operator did not have to be. Mm-hmm. So if you look over here, like everything on this shelf, this is from a company called Brand Corson. Um, this, this, this is one of the few factories that we have in here that's not from Providence. This factory was in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. If you're a jewelry buff, you would know them as B and K. This was largely sterling and Marcusite jewelry, but sometimes it was set with other things. So uh-huh. This was a factory. You can see, we got samples on outside the boxes yep. of all the things mm-hmm. that they were. These are all screw press tools. This mounts up in there and this gets down in bed. This is a trim tool, and so you can see these tools are kind of a more sophisticated tool. A piece of metal was gone in there.
0: Uh-huh.
1: This is the die, this is the forcer, a hub
0: uh-huh.
1: was blasted into there. See these tools can only mount up one way. There's a big pin and a small pin. Uh-huh. These are These are drop hammer tools. And then the trim tools, which are these things, are screw press tools. So we've stamped something, it's boss with the design, but we have all this extra metal. Mm -hmm. We put it in a screw press and just trim all the excess away instead of cutting it real slowly. Okay. Because that's what we're doing. We're not making originals, we're making lots and lots and lots of pieces as fast as we can. Mm -hmm. That's what this technology is about. This is about making money. This is about doing capitalism. Yeah. That's totally what this is about.
0: It's interesting because people don't think of it that way. Not yet.
1: No. They they do not. Americans are taught to not be critical of capitalism, and in capitalism, definitely what we're doing And so I think I have a unique and interesting perspective on this. One, I am an entrepreneurial capitalist, Mm -hmm. and I own the means of production. But also, I have something else going on in here besides having to make money. So I'll tell you this. I'm not a wealthy guy with a big um, hobby. I'm just an average guy trying to eke out a living in a hyper-competitive marketplace. Mm -hmm. But I do not think that my life should be worn out trying to make money. Mm -hmm. I think money should be used to enrich my life. But here's another antagonism in this. Our mission is to not crank out jewelry. Our mission is to make really beautiful gifts that people would use to send some very particular messages to someone they love. And I told you all about that in the home room. These are messages. Mm -hmm. They mean something. Right. And so if you want to make really beautiful things... The people who need, are going to make them need to love what they're doing, well, they need to sit in comfortable chairs. They need to be able to come and go as they please. Mm-hmm. They need to um, live in service of their families, of their wives, of their of their husbands, of their children mm-hmm. first. They need, they need to have tremendous control over what they're doing. They need to take a break whenever they want, and nobody's giving them any grief about it. Mm-hmm that's not capitalism, that's something else, that's a whole lot closer to Marxism. And so, I'm an entrepreneurial capitalist, and I'm a Marxist at the same time. And so, when people hear Marxism, they think, Russia, the Gulag, but the average person never read the Communist Manifesto. And if uh, you say this word, they think, what's this book? It's 10,000 pages long, and it mm-hmm. takes five years to read it. No. It's a pamphlet that your average person can read it in less than an hour. Mm-hmm. And so, really, it talks about what is the nature of being a human, and what is the nature of labor. And so science and technology and philosophy has given us this really well defined list of what does it take to be happy Mm -hmm. and all of us want to be happy and free of suffering so we got this list Well, one you're not on a battlefield and people aren't trying to kill you and another one is your body is largely free of pain your Mm -hmm. back isn't aching all the time Mm -hmm. you're not suffering Uh, you're not under constant state of anxiety love somebody, and somebody loves you back. You have ever-widening circles of friends. You belong to a community. You serve causes that are greater than yourself or yourself. And you must have engaged work to do. Mm-hmm. So if I change anything on this list that I just gave you, if I subtract any of them, mm-hmm. you're not safe. People are trying to kill you. You're not that happy. Now nobody's trying to kill you, but your body's constantly wrapped in pain, or nobody, let, or any of these things. Mm-hmm. But people don't take this one—that you must have engaged work.
0: Mm-hmm. Normally, with most of my guests and visitations or interviews with guests, I, there's some kind of closure. As you notice, there wasn't any kind of, um, you know, closure to the interview. That's because we went on for about. An hour and a half. So beyond what's recorded today for the podcast of about 45 minutes, there's still another 45, or maybe not 45, but um, I actually turned the recorder off at a certain point because I just wanted to focus on his stories. Amazing. I hope that you enjoyed it as much as I have. And to prepare this podcast, I had to listen to it more than several times to be able to grasp enough to be able to um translate it for you in a uh, a consolidated way so that you can wrap your head around what he was explaining to us i mean it's basically the history of jewelry in america so Thank you so much for joining me and I profusely thank Hugo Cole for sharing the time with me and his stories and experiences and his jewelry with all of us. Visit Hugo dot com to see his jewelry and read more about his story. There's a lot more on the website that covers a lot of what I told and what he explained as well. But like I said, if you happen to be in the Harrisonburg area passing through over the summertime or any time, it's definitely well worth the visit. So until next time, cross-check your sparkle and figure-eight safety clasps. Talk to you next time. Bye-bye.